Hey everybody, welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Yo. Yo. Today on the show, we are going to do some unsolved case files for you. One of favorite one of Kathy's favorite shows is Unsolved Mysteries. So, you know. <laughs> Here Bef- we are. Before you get started on that, I know I'm kind of throwing something at you. Okay. Danny Masterson finally got sentenced. Okay. So he might be doing 30 years to life. So after that whole yeah. debacle, yeah. they found him guilty. Wow. So I just want to give a little update on that because we had talked about that case in our right uh, update, our true crime episode like a week or two ago. So mm-hmm. just wanted, people may already know this, but maybe, you know, we talked a lot about that case. So he is, he's going away. Okay. Yeah. So I guess the jury came back or mm-hmm. it, or it was civil. I can't remember. Yeah, it was jury because the first time around they I think they called it a mistrial and then there was oh. like a year or two in between and then this time around they got him. Wow. Yeah. So that makes sense though from what we know. Yeah. And you saw the news about the Unabomber the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski found dead in his U.S. prison cell. I did not. All right, so we could just throw that out. I'll throw that out there really quick. One of my true crime friends, Pepper, <laughs> posted that today, and so I was reading through it. So, of course, it's Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber, has yeah. been found dead in his prison cell. Federal officials confirmed that. So he was 81, for those of you playing along. Wow. Yeah. Was he really? I know. So that's that's the like uh, just take that in. Ted Kaczynski was 81. He killed 3 people and injured 23 more during a mass mail bombing spree between 1978 and 1995. He later pled guilty to his crimes. He was sentenced to life without parole in 1996 after evading capture for almost 20 years. The Harvard-trained mathematician was eventually caught in a Montana cabin. He was a man who fascinated America for decades, as we know, and he spent the last three decades held in in a bunch of different prisons, um, but recently in North Carolina. And so the prison guards, I guess, at this facility discovered his body Saturday morning, just after midnight. And a spokesperson for the U.S. Bureau of Prisons told the BBC, that's where I'm reading this, that his cause of death was not immediately clear. I guess they immediately initiated life-saving you know, measures once he was found, and they transported him uh, to the local hospital and then he, where he was pronounced deceased, um, I guess, before suffering from declining health, which prompted his transfer to the facility he was in in North Carolina, mm-hmm. he had actually been held at a federal supermax prison in Colorado since May of 1998. So okay. I guess his health was failing already. And so he's an older guy to this. Pl- yeah, 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 for sure. And that's got to be a really stressful life living in prison. Yeah. Prison life takes many years off your life yeah. uh, for various reasons that we won't go into here but yeah so i wanted you to know that breaking news i mean wow. you know not breaking by the time <laughs> by the time this episode comes out but hey perfect all right so let's start with an unsolved crime shall we i'll start with mine how's okay. that sounds good okay so this is actually this is a very famous case in canada so for our canadian listeners you guys will know this one but perhaps everyone else may not i don't know so this is the case of a woman named Christina Kettlewell, who was murdered in Canada. She's generally referred to as the eight-day bride because she was married for eight days before she was murdered. On May 20th, 1947, 
the body of 22-year-old Christina Kettlewell was found 150 feet away from her honeymoon cottage on the banks of the river in Severn Falls, Ontario. She was laying in nine inches of water. First, here's how she even got there and how they found her. So let, we'll do that first. Christina Mokan, Mokan, I'm not sure, M-O-C-O-N, that's her maiden name, lived in Mimico. See, this is why I'm getting the M's. (laughs) (laughs) The M's fucked up. Lived in Mimico, Ontario, and she worked at a bank. On May 12th, 1947, Christina decided to elope with John Ray Kettlewell, a 26-year-old war veteran who went by the name of Jack. So Jack and Christina... They had known each other for about three years, and Christina's family actually was a little bit concerned about this relationship for Christina. They didn't quite dig Jack. There was just something about him. I feel like families always pick that up. They really do, don't they? They, Because they're objective, and we're under the drugs of, you know, love or whatever. And families will be like, nah, I don't know. I'm not sure about this one. So then there's another player in this story. Then there is Ronald Barry, a 28-year-old immigrant from Italy, and Jack's best friend happened to be working as a ballroom dancer at the time. Christina's family stated that Ronald was almost always with the couple, and they felt like Ronald was in love with Christina, but was Jack's BFF. So, you know, but they were always together, these three, Jack and his best friend and his lady. So... Flash forward to after Jack and Christina elope, they spent a few days in an apartment in Toronto and Ronald did too. All three of them are on Jack and Christina's honeymoon. Oh, that's strange. Yeah. So, you know, take that in for a second. Do you want to come on my honeymoon? I, I'd really prefer not to. Right? Isn't that weird? Yeah, no, I don't. You know, third wheeling is a thing I've done a lot in my life, but like, that's a little much. I don't mind being the third wheel at all. But on a honeymoon? Mm-mm. What are you doing? Mm-mm. What are you doing? Mm-mm. Oh, yeah. We're going to retire to the bedroom. You already know something <laughs> is up. Yeah. So it's already odd, right? Yeah. So they all three to just... And then... So they're in this apartment together. And then somebody suggests, probably Ronald, the, Bef- the BFF, hey, let's go to my cabin in Severn Falls, Ontario. So all three of them trot off on the honeymoon to the to the cottage sorry they call it a cottage i may call it a cabin i don't know so during this time they all spent at the cottage now take it in they're they've all now gone to the cottage together on the honeymoon they all spend all this time there and christina reportedly started to act out of character she started to have fits of crying she was dazed and confused. This is from like local shop owners and stuff. Having conversations with Ronald, he reported about whether Jack loved her or not, this kind of thing. So on May 20th, Christina disappears from the cottage. And later that day, the cottage mysteriously catches fire. And Ronald returns to the cabin to find Jack, the husband, if you're tracking this, being very disoriented and with a head injury, like bleeding from mm-hmm. the head. Okay. So Ronald pulls him out of the cottage that's on fire and then begins to look for Christina. Like, okay, I got him out. I got to find our lady friend. 
but she's not in the cottage. So Ronald takes Jack to the hospital and calls the police. And then the police go, and that evening, Christina's body is found 150 feet away from the cottage with no burns, no violence on her, like no evidence of her being hurt, like hurt in that way. Mm-hmm. There's traces later they find in, in autopsy, the traces of codeine in her stomach, but ultimately they say that the cause of death was drowning. Okay. Okay. So it's like he, a Natalie Wood case. Yeah, right. Because she had two guys there too. For yeah. That, right? Yeah. Christopher there Walken you go. being one. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so here's where there's mysterious stuff, not just odd stuff. (laughs) One of the first responders to the fire reported that hours earlier he had gone to that exact spot. So then they start to investigate, right? So there's been this fire, there's this, you know, woman who's dead, man who's injured. Police come in, they start to investigate, and they start interviewing everyone. And one of the first responders says, hey, you know, but earlier, hours before, when I was trying to put that fire out, I had gone to the exact spot where you found this woman to get water to use for the fire. Because remember, this is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I went to the spot where you found her body, and there was no body there. Now, of course, you could say he didn't see it. He was in adrenaline, whatever, but like that's his report. So they interrogated everyone. They interrogated Jack for about three hours. That's the husband. And he was, had been drugged as well. There was drug, like drugs in his system as well. And he says that he remembered nothing after 11 a.m. that day. Ronald, the BFF, the Italian BFF, ballroom dancer guy, was interrogated for 13 hours and provided a 3,000-word statement (laughs) that the police called... 3,000? Yeah, 3,000 words. Here's my essay on today, which, you know, we know what that says kind of about, like, giving a lot of detail, right? So he provided a 3,000-word statement, which the police called, quote-unquote, fantastic. But I I don't... (laughs) That seems really odd. I'm thinking maybe they were, like, fantastical, Like is maybe what they were kind of meeting, but I don't really know. So let's pause there. This was a highly sensationalized case because of what this sounds like, right? Mm -hmm. Three people on a honeymoon and there's all this mystery and two guys and one's injured and one's a hero rescuing the other and the girls over there dead. Like, so it was really sensationalized. This kind of thing wasn't happening a ton where they were. There was a hearing to find out whether or not there was any foul play involved because they really didn't find any evidence of there was no weapons. There was no, like there was a little bit of medication in her system and medication in his system, Mm -hmm. but like that could have been self, you know, they could have taken that themselves. Like who knows? So they were trying to figure out if there was foul play or not. And ultimately the hearing decided that they couldn't say that there was foul play because there just wasn't a lot of evidence. So that's sort of where it ends. But let's talk theories because this is unsolved. Sure. There's a few theories. So you'll tell me what you think. Okay. <laughs> with all the theories, what you, which one you like better. Okay. Christina had mental illness. This is a theory or this is fact? No, this is true. Okay. She, she was dealing with her own mental health. Got it. 
And she had written three different suicide notes over the last several weeks before this happened. So one of the theories is that she took her own life. So there were three different suicide notes. They sort of talk about like maybe she tried to drug herself. Maybe she was like fretting over Jack because there is a history of her like not knowing and, and thinking that she was just a fling and Jack wasn't really in love with her, this kind of thing. But in those notes, she indicated in the first one that she would kill herself. The second note indicates actually that she would kill herself and Jack because if I can't have him, no one can kind of feels. I mean, I think that was one of the quotes. And then the day before her death, she wrote a suicide note that was sent to a friend, I guess, that of course wasn't gotten until, you know, several days later. It indicated that Ron, or Ronnie, as she respond, as she referred to him, which is the Italian best friend, was staying around during the honeymoon because he was afraid something might happen between Jack and Christina. So then that sort of casts Ronald as like a protector in the situation. Like he was yet one more person, like his family, that felt not great about this relationship and wanted so this theory kind of casts him that way he also saved all the letters from the burning house by the way okay so this house burns down and who does he save he saves jack and he saves her writings and letters okay one theory that she took her own life and tried to kill jack by burning down the house or something ran away and Fell asleep in a pool of water and drowned because that was the the like, like uh, just cause of death. Like drowning. tripped and yeah, which I mean could happen. Sure, you lay down because you're drugged and sleepy, and you yeah, go like, true. okay, I've done my thing. You lay down in nine inches of water. You're not thinking you're going to drown, but as we know these days, that happens all the time. All right, so theory number two, <laughs> Ronald's story. If you may remember the three thousand word <laughs> essay he wrote, the police, when he found the house burning. He says when he ran in to see where his friends were, he saw Jack first with this head injury. And so he rescued him. He took him out and then he went back in. He reports that when he went in to get Jack, he saw Christina there, but he had to take them one one at a time. So he took Jack out because he was injured. And then when he went back into the cottage, he says that he couldn't find Christina when he went back in and that she was no longer there. That, you know, there was only part of the cabin or cottage was on fire. So he just searched where he could and she was no longer in there. And he says he didn't, he didn't see any weapons. He didn't see any evidence of like why Jack would be injured. He kind of figured like, okay, maybe he got hit with a, with a piece of wood from the fire. Like he didn't know, but of course the adrenaline's going. You're not really thinking about anything. Sure. But here's the thing. The investigator on the case called Ronald a complete liar and felt like he was completely fabricating all of his side of the story. I'm not sure why, but that was the, the feel okay. of that. So that's number two is that with if we take Ronald's story into consideration, she like ran out of the burning house. Maybe she had smoke inhalation or something, although they found out later and like wandered off and passed out from you know the whatever over by the rocks okay and died there instead of dying in the house okay so that's one other theory and then another theory is actually that here's some information 
Jack took out life insurance. This is the husband, Jack, took out life insurance policies on himself and Christina just before the marriage. You think, okay, well, I mean, you know, you get married, whatever. But both policies included double indemnity clauses, which would all allow the beneficiary to collect twice the amount if the cause of death was accidental. That makes me think like, okay, well, maybe Jack was trying to kill her and lit the house on fire and she ran out. He thought that she would stay in the house, but she ran out and died somehow over there. But so here's another piece of information. Guess who was the beneficiary on both policies? That would be Ronald. Right. Best friend. So Ronald had also taken out an insurance policy on his (laughs) cottage that mysteriously burned down and he named Jack as his beneficiary. Oh, <laughs> I know plot thickens, right? Right. This is uh so Jack. Ga- oh, and uh, in other news, Jack, who was a veteran had given his war gratuity to Ronald and Jack removed his family from his will. And we're not sure why. Also good to know that Ronald had two failed professions in construction and you named it insurance. So he had done those two jobs and now he's a ballroom dancer. <laughs> also, Christina's wedding ring was never recovered. So there's that. Okay. Okay. In Ronald's statement, he stated that Jack and he had been in an intimate relationship for a long time. Oh, the plot thickens. Jack denied this during his inter- interrogation, and and there was no actual like evidence, no love letters, no nothing that they that anybody could like verify either one of their stories. But under interrogation, you may remember Jack was interrogated for thirteen hours. He admitted that it was true, but you know we, we don't know, know. interrogation. That's right. right. The thing is, is that Jack got married three years later and had kids and then separated um, in the 1960s. And his kids apparently never knew about his first marriage because he never discussed it. In fact, they were like doing genealogy or whatever. Genealogy. Genealogy. I'm like, did you just combine two different... I did. I did. (laughs) (laughs) They were doing genealogy and found this, his first marriage in the stories and then found like news clippings and everything and found out about it because Jack never mentioned it whatsoever. So they found out later when they were older. But anyway... Ronald was still living close to them when they were married and knew like his kids when they were little Ronald, but Ronald moved to New York in 1956 and he actually left his, his little dog with Jack's two year old son when he moved away. So they were obviously they were, he was obviously still the BFF and part of the family. So that's really the story, you know? So was it a freak accident, a suicide attempt, a domestic dispute, or a pact between lovers to get money and freedom? I mean, that's my most obvious choice is the pact. You know, the uh, even thinking about, like, they took the ring off of her before mm-hmm. she died. She could have been dead before the house even burnt down. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. But it's still, to this day, we don't know. Yeah. I don't know. No one was ever... there. They didn't even... They did investigate it, but they decided they didn't have enough to say it was even foul play. There we are. Wowza. Good one. It's a good one. All right. Good one. So what uh, What say you? I believe you have a case as well today. I do. I'm going to talk about uh, the murder of Joseph Augustus Zarelli, who was previously known as the boy in the box or boy in a box. 
also known as America's Unknown Child. This is a really sad story. All of these are, obviously, but when it involves a child who's this young, especially. It's an extra level of sad. Yeah. So, you know, I think they presume the, his birth to be January 13th, 1953, died in February 1957. I would imagine these are estimates. So he was an American four-year-old boy whose naked, extensively beaten dead body was found on the side of, and I might be saying this wrong, Susquehanna Road in mm. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on February 25th, 1957. So an autopsy confirmed that he was between the ages of four and six. And in the condition that they found him in, the autopsy had confirmed that he had sustained multiple abrasions, contusions, subdural hemorrhage, and pleural effusions, um, the injuries that essentially amounted to this blunt force trauma. There were some other really odd things about the way they found him. He appeared to have been cleanly and freshly groomed, like they possibly cleaned him after they had beaten him to death. Which does happen a lot. It does. Um, he also had had a recent haircut. His fingernails were trimmed. Although he had suffered extensive physical abuse prior to his death based on the autopsy with the multiple bruises, he was also, on top of that, he was severely malnourished. Mm. What I get from that, and this is just theoretical, is is he was uh, someone's child who was abusing him. Maybe, I don't know, he's goes out into the world, he's sent to school or whatever, he's still clean, his nails are trimmed or whatever, but we know what can happen behind closed doors. Absolutely. And he was so severely malnourished. His body was covered with scars, um, some of which were surgical scars, mostly, um, which is really, really sort of strange, most notably on his ankle, his groin, and his chin. Mm. Um, and the authorities do believe, though, that the cause of death was the homicide by the blunt force trauma to his head. So on February 25th, 1957, his body was wrapped, Israeli's body was wrapped in a plaid blanket and it was found in the woods off of Susquehanna Road, like I had um, mentioned before. His body was discovered by a young man who was checking his muskrat traps. And so he just happened to be <laughs> okay. out there and fearing that the, the police would actually confiscate his traps. He did not report initially what he had found because gotcha. they're going to be like, why are you out there? Yeah. Right. So then muskrat murderer, muskrat murderer stumbles <laughs> upon this is like now it's double shit because I'm not supposed to be out here and I find this kid. Yeah, I mean, I get it. <laughs> cool. So a few days later, um, a college student spotted a rabbit running into the underbrush and knowing that there were animal traps in the area, he stopped his car to investigate and, and then he discovered the body. Oh, okay. Uh, he was also reluctant to have any contact with the police. <laughs> I mean, you know. I mean, right? Um, I think, too, just before I go on, any, yeah. I, I would imagine, I've never, this has never happened, but I would imagine if you did find a dead body in reporting that, they'd be like, did you kill him? Yeah, I mean, right? you you are signing up for something. I mean, most yeah. of us, may, most of us, maybe if it's relatable, we've all maybe called the police after we've seen an accident or we've sure. witnessed something where we did have to give a statement That's of right. some kind. And you know you're signing up for time and, you know, effort. That's right. But he did end up reporting what he had found the following day. And after hearing of the disappearance of a woman by the, Mary, uh, by the name of Mary Jane Barker. So there was already, like, stuff going on in the news. And this guy's like, okay, well, something's happening. I do need to report this. Yeah, of course. So the naked body was um, inside a cardboard box that had once contained a bassinet 
of the kind sold by JCPenney at that time. So like the bassinet obviously wasn't in there, but it was this empty box and that's where they had put his, so to give you kind of uh, an idea of how big the box was. Yeah. I had talked about how his, he was well-groomed, but clumps of hair were like clung to his body and the, the, his conditions were like really weird. So he had grooming nails trimmed, but then, in conjunction with that, there was like this severely beaten, malnourished little boy. Yeah. So after, you know, this goes on to the news and it's being talked about, but no one ever came forward to claim Joseph as their child and his identity remained a mystery despite numerous attempts to identify him over the years. Well, that's, that says family murder, right? You would think. So the boy was originally buried in um, a potter's field in Philadelphia where it, it the body would lie until 1998 when his remains were exhumed before being subsequently uh, reinterned at Ivy Hill Cemetery, uh, Cemetery, where a headstone today reads America's Unknown Child, which is really sad. Yeah, that's so sad. Yeah. I mean, I imagine there's thousands of them, but this I would is imagine. kind of a symbol of that. Yeah. So the investigators retained portions of uh, his remains, obviously, to for future testing. But DNA tests at the time yielded uh, no new leads, so I don't think they were as sophisticated. But then they reopened it um, again in 2019 when it was determined that the case could benefit from more of the modern forensic techniques. You bet. So that what changed in 2022, this is really when they started to put things together, is police, annou- police announced that they had successfully identified the child through detective work and with the help of genetic genealogists, a field that in recent years has led to numerous breakthroughs and cold cases, including the Golden State Killer, um, and has also just reunited families with missing loved ones. So they had found the body of the boy in the box. Although the killer actually remained unsolved, the detectives had found the family and, and knew now that the boy's now deceased parents, like they were able to find out who he belonged to, but they stopped short of disclosing who they believe was responsible for his death. Okay. So the authorities state, we have our suspicions as to, to who may be responsible, but it would be irresponsible of me to share these suspicions as this remains an active and ongoing criminal investigation. This is said by Captain Jason Smith of the Philadelphia Police Homicide Unit. So he hopes news of the ID prompts an avalanche of tips from the public, but acknowledges that the age of the case presents investigators with an uphill battle. So I would imagine over time, you know, more and more evidence has really just like gone to shit. Yeah. Since his discovery, the police department has attempted to identify him and piece together what happened. And there have been multiple theories that have been suggested and disproven over the years. So I'm just going to read about two of those. Okay. Uh, but they both have been disproven as my understanding, which is what leaves this really seriously open still. So the first theory concerns a foster home that was located within two miles of the site where the body was found. And the theory alleges that the boy was the child of a woman whose father ran the foster home. And this theory came out around 1960 after an employee of the medical examiner's office, Remington Bristow, had actually spoken to a New Jersey psychic about the case. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. they'll bring in these police psychics or yeah. whatever. Yep. And so the psychic was brought to the site where the body was found, and she led Bristow directly to the foster home. So while attending an estate sale at the foster home, Bristow had found blankets hanging in the on the clothesline that were very similar to the one in which the bo- boy's body had been wrapped in when he was discovered. 
So Bristol believed that the boy belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the foster home and that the, uh, the body was disposed of. So the stepdaughter would not be exposed as an unwed mother. However, the police were able to establish that all of the home's foster children were accounted for and that they also confirmed that the family who ran the foster home was unlikely to be involved. So they wiped that theory out. Okay, gotcha. And then the other theory that came up was that another theory that grew popular was the Martha or M theory. In 2002, it involved a woman saying she and her mother were involved in the child's death. And Martha was able to give information and details known only to the police. However, because of her history of mental illness, they were remained unconvinced that she actually was the killer. Okay. She claimed that her abusive mother had purchased the unknown boy from his birth parents in the summer of 1954. And from then on, he was subject to physical and sexual abuse. And she added that on one occasion, the boy had vomited up his dinner of baked beans and was severely beaten as a result, which I believe was was in line with some of the things that they found at the scene, but they've never really confirmed that they could connect this. However, that theory sounds to me very possible based on some of these things that we do know. So yeah, like setting aside the details of that. Yeah. The idea that this boy was never identified and, and, and all, and like decades and decades go by and still nobody knows who he, you know, where he, sorry, what happened to him, it makes a little bit of sense that it would be a situation where he was sold or given or kidnapped and taken on in by somebody else. So the, so the lineage and the names and everything would be changed. So that just makes sense of like, nobody knows who it is or where it happened. Like that kind of idea. It's like that could happen these days too. That's right. All the time. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it could have been one of the, yeah, he could have been sold. Yeah, um, which is yeah. very, very sad. But anyway, it, you know, it was just one of the most notorious cases of missing children in our history. And, you know, one day maybe we'll know more. I don't know. Well, I hope so, of course. Yeah. But don't hold out hope. That's right. <laughs> I hope so, but don't hold hope. How, how, did, how did it go for you with your unsolved mysteries for today? I'm missing the music. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to, we'll have to have our own unsolved mystery music. Maybe you singing it is yeah, definitely like, an option. Unsolved mysteries with God. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Same tune. Right. <laughs> the same tune as all your other tunes. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this. We'll be doing some more of this because we find it interesting and we hope you do too. So thanks so much for stopping by. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. <laughs>